1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear from a fire survivor who now helps others get through one of the most difficult aspects of recovery, insurance.
0: That was one of the hardest things that we had to navigate in the entire wildfire loss was just navigating that insurance claim.
1: And we'll hear the history of a much beloved fruit that wasn't always easy to find, the avocado. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Avocados are a staple food item found on many kitchen counters and slices of toast these days. But you may not realize that avocados weren't always this easy to find. Later in the show, we'll speak to a Colorado food science professor about the history behind the fruit. But first, we're going to look at the challenges facing the hundreds of families who lost everything in the Marshall Fire who are now dealing with the aftermath of putting their lives together. This complicated process looks different for each person affected by Colorado's most destructive fire. For those who were insured, working with their provider to file claims and compile detailed inventories of belongings has become a key part of the day-to-day after the fire but not all residents with insurance have enough coverage to cover the costs of losing a home. That was the case for our next guest, Karen Remus, who lost her home in the 2003 Cedar Fire in San Diego. Karen discovered that her home was severely underinsured after it burned. Two years later, she began volunteering for United Policyholders, a national nonprofit that helps people navigate all kinds of insurance, including after natural disasters. Karen joins us now to talk about her work with survivors of the Marshall Fire. Karen, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure speaking with you, Aaron. I want to get into the work that you do with United Policyholders in just a bit. But first, I would love to hear about your own experience surviving wildfire. As we mentioned, you lost your home in 2003 in the Cedar Fire. What were some of the biggest immediate challenges that you faced after that?
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely, I, it was brutal. I, I don't know how else to describe it, candidly. I mean, a total wildfire loss. You know, we were a total loss. Our home, all belongings just went down. And candidly, one of the biggest challenges in the wake of it, obviously, there's the immediate trauma, you know, and uh, That goes without saying, but just very quickly became um, apparent to us that we were underinsured. And truly, that was one of the biggest challenges, one of the hardest things that we had to navigate in the entire wildfire loss was just navigating that insurance claim. We had a brand new policy. We had just bought the house a few minutes, uh, you know, let's try that again, a few months beforehand. So we had a new policy. Um, you know, we'd even brought the earthquake coverage. You know, we wanted to make sure we were fully covered, and um, and we were very dramatically underinsured. And you know, just at, you know, in the wake of just navigating the trauma, the loss. I mean, I had two young children. My kids were two and seven, trying to support our children through these losses, and then having to face this big insurance fight you know it was just brutal it was one of the hardest aspects of navigating that loss candidly
1: well let me ask you what does it mean to be underinsured how does this happen yeah uh, that's a good question i
0: mean what it means is that the amount of coverage you have is not enough to replace or rebuild what you had right so quite simply just the policy limits How does it happen? That's a great question. I mean, I think we purchased our policy like most people purchase their policies. And in my experience now as a, you know, volunteer for, you know, since 2005, this is what I've encountered over and over and working on multiple, multiple wildfire um, disasters with United Policyholders. You know, when we purchased our home, I contacted our insurance representative and, you know, they asked questions. They asked me questions like, you know, how many stories is the home? What kind of roof do you have? How many, you know, sometimes they'll ask like, how many windows do you have? You know, the typical, you know, know, Q&A survey. And, you know, we answered them honestly. We answered them honestly. Um, They provided, you know, a declarations page like, oh, here's, you know, the coverage that we're going to write. Here's how much you pay. And you write a check. I mean, that's what I did. I mean, candidly. I relied on the expertise of my insurance professional. I mean, at that time, I certainly didn't have any um, insurance or construction expertise, you know? And, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you go to the dentist. I don't ask the dentist, like, are you sure you're filling that cavity properly? <laughs> you know, I, you rely on the expertise of the professionals you do business with. And so it came as a real shocker to us You know, we had, like I said, a brand new policy. You know, I'd answered those questions honestly and completely. And, and yet we were underinsured.
1: I was just going to say you weren't trying to get, you know, pay the lowest possible premium or anything like that.
0: I mean, nobody could even make that argument with us. We bought the earthquake policy, which, you know, those are actually much more affordable now. But back in 2003, they were very expensive. We were trying to do everything we could to be properly covered. And in my experience, most people are. For most people, their home is their largest asset. You know, that certainly was true for us. And so we were trying to do everything to ensure that if something, you know, until what happened, we would have proper coverage and we would be able to repair or rebuild.
1: Now, I understand after you lost your home in that 2003 fire, you were connected with United Policyholders at that time. How did they help you?
0: Oh, my goodness. United Policyholders made all the difference. I mean, it was such a hard experience, but, you know, dealing with the insurance company, but United Policyholders truly Gave me the information, the resources I needed to be able to navigate that claim. I mean, it's hard to describe to people who haven't been through it, Erin. And I wouldn't have, I would never suspected this. I mean, Candace Lee, if you'd asked me before my home burned down, like, oh, you know, you have a total loss in a natural disaster. Um, I, you know, what do you think is going to happen after that? You know, there's no issue of fraud, right? It's a natural disaster. I would have thought like, oh, you know, your insurance company just writes you a check and then you proceed to rebuild. I mean, that's what I would have anticipated, especially in a total loss as we had. That's not what happens. And it's a long process. It's very foreign in terms of just, you know, there's a lot of lingo, ACV, RCV, ALE. You know, what do these things mean? I certainly didn't then. I do now. <laughs> <laughs> I but, but you know you know how I learned what those things meant? United Policyholders. They have really helped me, provided resources again they, for wildfire survivors, to anybody who listens to this piece that it has, it has been affected by the Marshall Fire Survivor or knows somebody who's been affected by the Marshall Fire Survivor. All of United Policyholders' resources, and there are a lot of them, are free. It's a nonprofit charity, and I just the website is www.uphelp.org. And I just cannot stress to people enough to go check it out. It's just really invaluable.
1: You know, one thing that always strikes me after there is a catastrophic wildfire and we talk to people who've been impacted, that it is really this double gut punch of, you know, losing perhaps everything and then having to deal with insurance. Um, I know since 2005, you've been volunteering with United Policyholders uh, to help other survivors. What are some of the biggest issues right now that Marshall Fire survivors are facing?
0: Yeah, you know, you're hitting it, you know, right on there, Erin. And, you know, we often refer to this as like twice burned. And after our fire, my neighbors and I, you know, first burned by the fire. And then we felt secondly burned by the insurance company, you know, in terms of having to fight these issues out, you know, under insurance. There are other challenges that people can face, you know, lowballing, but the under insurance is huge. Candidly, I mean, I was on the phone with a Marshall fire survivor just on Friday I mean, this woman just lost her home just a month ago. She is eight months pregnant, for the record. She is dramatically underinsured. And she was telling me, like, neighbor after neighbor after neighbor that she's talking to is also underinsured. Not only is she underinsured, but she told me she had called her insurance company rep before the fire to ask about getting more coverage it was told she didn't need it, that she had enough coverage. She's dramatically underinsured. She's about to have a baby. And now this lady is trying to recover from the trauma of this fire. And now, how is she going to rebuild her home? This woman should be thinking about the upcoming birth of this baby, taking care of herself. And this is what this lady's contending with. And candidly, I I mean, Erin is just like, you know, in all of these fires, fire after fire, that I volunteered with, you know, United Policyholders as a volunteer, this underinsurance, it's like the same bad record that keeps playing over and over and over again. I mean, you know, 2010 Four Mile Canyon fire, you know, in a survey of those four, those fire survivors, 64% reported being underinsured. You know, if we look at a survey conducted of 2012 High Park and Woodland Heights fire survivors. reported being underinsured. You know, I'm frustrated that regulators and elected officials alike have not resolved this issue for their constituents who are relying on an insurance policy they paid for to recover and rebuild.
1: That's the first part of our conversation with Karen Remus, who's a volunteer with the national nonprofit United Policyholders. We'll continue after a short break. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. We're talking with Karen Remus, a survivor of the 2003 Cedar Fire in San Diego. She's volunteering to help survivors of the Marshall Fire navigate the complicated insurance process. She's with United Policyholders, a national nonprofit that helps people navigate all kinds of insurance, including after natural disasters. Given these claim status surveys that United Policyholders conduct that find Most people are reporting that they're underinsured. I'm wondering how you help people, you know, fix this issue. I mean, clearly, well before the Marshall Fire, fire survivors have been struggling to get help and recover. So what kind of advice do you give to survivors uh, right now going through the same type of insurance issues that you did?
0: You know, I would say, first and foremost, under insurance, when we're talking about it on a case-by-case basis, right, on a case-by-case basis, which is what you're asking about, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So it's hard to say, like, oh, across the board, here's how you handle it. It's very much a case-by-case basis. You know, what were the specific, um, you know, facts of of their situation? You know, how far are they underinsured? The first and best piece of advice I would offer is to go to the United Policyholders website. There's an entire section of the website devoted to underinsurance. And I would say start there. Also, United Policyholders is conducting educational online meetings. They call them, it's part of their roadmap to recovery um, uh, resourcing. And, you know, as part of that, they undoubtedly will have a meeting devoted exclusively to under insurance it's such you know right now they're in the beginning portion of this series you know how to read your you know your insurance policy you know how to document your claim but i would encourage people to be um attuned for that upcoming um resourcing you know in terms of those online meetings because it really is very much a case by case but i mean at a systemic level so that's case by case right at a systemic level I I mean, I encourage, you know, Marshall fire survivors and supporters to reach out to their elected officials and regulators and say to them, we need help at a systemic level. You know, it's a lot to ask these fire survivors one by one to individually fight this out case by case. You know, they're trying to find rental housing. They're trying to get their debris, um, you know, removed. They're trying to um, start to um, inventory their personal property. They're trying, you know, there's uh, the to-do list for fire survivors is extremely long. So I would encourage anybody, um, you know, just the community at large to say, hey, our elected officials, our state senators, our state assembly people, our regulators, please address this.
1: Yes, it sounds like lawmakers are going to debate taking some action on one aspect of insurance. Um, but it would be interesting to see if they will talk about actually reforming the whole process of, you know, underwriting your insurance policy, how much do you need?
0: How about just saying, for people who are underinsured, you know, I, I, I take, the, for example, the Marshall Fire survivor I just spoke with, she called and asked to, to increase her in limits for people, you know what I'm saying? that is somebody, you know, somebody like that should be made whole right now. She shouldn't have to be fighting this out. You know what I'm saying? Tooth and nails. She's anticipating the birth of her child. And she called and asked for increased limits and was told she didn't need them. Okay. So I think a a regulator could say, hey, for people who fall at at, at a minimum." at a minimum in that type of category, insurance companies need to stand up and stand behind the promises they made, you know, because the promise is peace of mind. That's what they are selling. They're selling peace of mind. And so stand behind that, make these people whole. Let's move on.
1: I imagine you've connected with a lot of survivors. I'm wondering, uh, what is their reaction to being helped by someone who has actually gone through what they are going through? You know,
0: I, you know, sometimes we describe it as it's, it's the club you never wanted to join, right? You never wanted to be a part of this club. And I think for um, wildfire survivors, I think just to have that um, sympathetic ear and especially talking to somebody who's gone through it and come out the other side is can be very comforting candidly when i'm i'm speaking with wildfire survivors i really try to listen more than i talk candidly um and what i really you know of course i'm trying to listen to what's happening in their particular circumstance but i think one of the biggest things that previous wildfire survivors can bring is is hope you know practical tips of course but just you know hope you know there's an end point And, you know, because we've been through it before and we've walked that journey, I think it just gives us a lot of, I wanna use the word credibility. I'm not sure if that's exactly right, but, you know, they know that we've walked that path, you know, and I think it's one of the most important things that United Policyholders does is they bring together, they have a core of 150, over 150 previous wildfire survivor volunteers like myself who, you know, are available to listen, to talk, and to say like, oh, hey, I was also uninsured. Here's some things, or I also encountered this other challenge, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, oh, my children also had some difficulty at this time, this is how we navigated it. It can be personal, it can be insurance, and just bring that, you know, compassion and that firsthand experience.
1: Karen Remus is a survivor of the 2003 Cedar Fire in San Diego, and she is also a volunteer for United Policyholders, a national nonprofit that helps people navigate all kinds of insurance issues. Karen, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me, Erin. Avocados are a staple food item found on many kitchen counters these days, and according to a recent report from Texas A&M University, our economy benefits from the much-beloved fruit. The report found that U.S. imports of Haas avocados from Mexico have contributed to $6.5 billion growth in the U.S. economic output. And though this all may seem obvious given the popularity of avocados today, they weren't always easy to find. We're going to dive into the history of this dark green, oddly textured fruit with Jeff Miller. He's an associate professor in the Colorado State University Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition. He is also the author of the book Avocado, A Global History. I feel like most people have tasted avocado, but if you were to describe an avocado to someone who's never seen one, eaten one, even heard of one before, what would you say?
2: Boy, that would be a tough one because one of the really unique things about an avocado is That is not a texture that most of us would put right at the top of our flavor preference list, our texture (laughs) preference list. So (laughs) It's kind of soft. It's kind of mushy. It's kind of gluey. You know, it's it's kind of like an oyster in the sense that it's really kind of a brave person to, to take a bite of one.
1: Avocados were first brought to the United States in 1833. Tell us about the initial reaction to the fruit and how avocados came to be grown here.
2: Avocados were first brought to the U.S. in Florida by Dr. Henry Perine, and they were pretty well received, and there weren't a lot of people in Florida in those days. You have to understand that a lot of people living in Florida are as a result of the invention of air conditioning. Before that, it, and especially in the 1830s, there were very few Europeans living in Florida, but they did well, and they were well accepted. And had he not been killed in a raid on his island, he might have lived to spread the the gospel of them a little further but they did well on his little island but he didn't really have a chance to spread the word and nobody else really tried it again for you know another 60 years
1: well early on avocados were mostly popular in California right and they begin to grow in popularity when California cuisine gained popularity
2: right for a long time it was definitely a culinary item that was only from Mexico and was only in the United States, really only eaten in Southern California, and it really doesn't even start to take off until the silent movie era, and Los Angeles starts to grow as a place to make movies and to grow fruit, but it's still somewhat limited into that area until uh, the late 1960s and early 1970s with the growth of what we think of as California cuisine and The people who really put them on the map are people like Jonathan Waxman and uh, Alice Waters at Chez Pigny in Berkeley. They were consciously creating a cuisine that was based in this amazing cornucopia that's California. And it just seemed like, oh, this is this thing that is uniquely Californian. And so we're going to feature this in our cuisine. And and from there, it kind of started to take off.
1: How did avocados get to be as popular as they are right now?
2: I think you have to hand it almost single-handedly to the growth in Tex-Mex style cuisine in America.
1: You know for a long
2: time that was not popular, it was very much limited to the southwest and to Texas and at some point in the 1970s as more Hispanic people moved around, Latinx people moved around the United States, they brought this cuisine with them and guacamole was the thing that really put avocados over the top and as avocados and guacamole got more popular. Uh, You know, at one point they had the first ad for avocados on the Super Bowl, and boy, it was just the sky was the limit after that.
1: Let's say more about the ecological impact of growing avocados. I mean, what are the water needs of an avocado plant?
2: The average avocado you buy at the grocery store will have uh, taken about a bathtub full of water to grow. We always use the almond as some kind of poster child for extravagant water use in agriculture, but the avocado is not necessarily a lot better citizen itself. There are some places where it gets enough natural rainfall that that can happen, and Michoacan's one of those places. Dominican Republic, which grows amazing amount of avocados, same way. Sub-Saharan Africa, the same way. But also a lot of the places where they grow it, like Chile and Australia and Southern California and Israel and places, Spain, places like that, They use a tremendous amount of water that's diverted from other purposes.
1: Why do you think it's important to approach everyday foods like the avocado with the knowledge of the history and the ecology of it, the way that you present in your book? I think if
2: we understand the cultural importance of foods, it helps us appreciate other people and other cultures around the world. And we can kind of get a sense of, well, this is important in their culture and understand why it's important. And I also think, you know, if we think about the sensitivities that go with eating anything, I'm not a vegetarian, you know, I'm not, don't think that people should stop eating everything altogether. But if we approach things with the knowledge of how we can make selections carefully and respectfully and to utilize products totally so that we don't waste, all those things are an important way to approach our diet. I'm huge on, you know, you should, we should eat. Snout to tail on animals. We should utilize everything that comes out of the fields. There's so much waste in the, in the process that haven't, it just gives us a respect for the product, for the people that produce it, that the cultures that it comes from. And I think being a conscious eater is good. Knowledge, you know, sometimes comes with responsibility.
1: Jeff Miller is an associate professor in the Colorado State University Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition and the author of the new book, Avocado, A Global History. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcote and Jackie High. We want to take a moment to acknowledge the incredible contributions of Brian Larson, who has served as Colorado Editions Executive Producer from day one. Today is Brian's last day with us. Our team is very sad to see him go. Brian joined KUNC in 1993 as the local host of All Things Considered. He worked his way through pretty much every job in the news department, from host to reporter and news director. His work received awards from organizations like the Colorado Broadcasters Association, the Associated Press, and the Society of Professional Journalists. And his talents as an editor elevated the work of KUNC's newsroom to the level of national recognition. Brian was an excellent mentor, advocate, and editor for all of us. If you've heard the show improve over the years, it was Brian at the helm encouraging each of us to grow the show in new directions. And while he had an interest in just about every topic under the sun, he had a particular fondness for conversations that revealed fascinating facts, like just how much water it takes to grow avocados. We're sending love to Brian, we hope he gets more time to jam on the guitar, shave a few strokes off his golf game, and maybe visit a few of Colorado's historic outhouses, a subject he knows all too much about. I'm Erin O'Toole, thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.